It's the confluence where the news comes together on 90.5 WESA. I'm Kevin Gavin. On June 21st, Allegheny County's Department of Human Services closed the emergency shelter in the basement of the Smithfield United Church of Christ in downtown Pittsburgh. Stephanie Strasberg is a photojournalist with Public Source, and Eric Jankowitz is economic development reporter for Public Source. They covered the closure of the shelter and the impacts on its residents. Welcome, Eric. Welcome, Stephanie. Hi, thanks for having us, Kevin. Thanks so much for having us. We're excited to be here. In the past, the emergency shelter, also known as the cold weather shelter, closed up in March. Uh, why was it extended into June? Eric, please remind us. Um, so they, they extended it into June after um, they were just getting a, just a high number of uh, um, people looking to stay at the shelter. And uh, you were just seeing that maximum capacity was being hit on a pretty regular basis. Uh, so the demand was just there. So the county's Department of Human Services decided to extend the the opening. And at first they said indefinitely. OK, so, Eric, though, you said the demand was there. But did the need for the overnight shelter ease? And what was the reason the county then closed it in June? Um, I, I, I don't think the the demand or the need for it ever eased through the summer. Um, we were still seeing pretty high numbers throughout the summer and um they they decided to close it the department of human services said it was because of the conditions there including a lack of air conditioning um but on the day that they announced the closure we also spoke to um the uh the church's uh administrator uh, john colburn and he said that they were in the process of installing air conditioners and about a week or so later i even took a a tour with john colburn and i saw all the air conditioners in place and most of them were up and running, and it felt pretty comfortable down there. Did you take that information back to the county about the air conditioners being installed? Uh, and if so, what did they say? Um, yeah, we did, and and they they just continued to say that that the standards weren't weren't high enough, and that they were looking for alternative shelter beds that would have higher standards. Mm -hmm. Now, after the shelter closed, what options did people who slept at Smithfield have? I mean, other shelters and other neighborhoods set up overnight space. Uh, was there a reluctance to go to them, whether it was East Liberty, Northside? What? Um, yeah, so there there were a couple others. You, you, you referenced them. Um, and uh, there was um, Light of Life and um, on the Northside and East... Uh, um, cooperative ministries on the east end and a couple other places um, but there did seem to be a reluctance for for people to go there just because there were uh <clears throat> the shelters either closed at an earlier time than second avenue commons or uh sorry smithfield um and smithfield was was open uh all night and people could just come in whenever and there were sort of truly low barrier shelter in the sense that anybody could go um, and so just a lot of people didn't want to go to those other shelters that had different barriers in place. Mm -hmm. Stephanie, did you see the closing of the Smithfield shelter as sort of a flashpoint to address the overall issue of homelessness in Pittsburgh? Eric and I have been uh, working on Shelter Stakes, an ongoing series on homelessness and the housing crisis and shelter in the city since the start of the year. And through following that over the that the period of months, we realized that there was a lot of interest in what was happening on Smithfield Street. I think it kind of collided a bunch of big issues um, all at once. You know, the end of the pandemic, 
meant the end of pandemic aids that kept people in their housing. So when that ended at the end of March 2022, Pittsburgh and other cities saw a lot of people pushed out onto the streets. Um, and that presented uh, very publicly in terms of our, our mental health crisis mixed with a housing crisis. Um, all of these things drove a large interest. Mm -hmm. You profiled a few people who stayed in the shelter at Smithfield United. How long did you follow these people, Stephanie? We've been visiting Smithfield Street since the beginning of the year, and then we started going very regularly come May when we realized that the shelter might be closing. Mm -hmm. Any trends of who these residents were, these overnight residents are, uh, did they have similar stories of how they became homeless or chose to be at that particular shelter? I think, you know, the experience of homelessness is as wide and varied as people are, as the people experiencing homelessness are. So we, we saw a wide range of people, Sam, the person that we ended up following very closely, he was somebody with advanced degrees. He had a master's degree, um, was, you know, starting his own business, um, had come from India via Philadelphia, via North Carolina, via Atlantic City. Um, he had traveled all over the world and um, had written a book and designed classes. So we had somebody like that. And then there were people who are just coming out of Allegheny County jail and didn't have a place to go. There's people whose relationships had fallen out that maybe they were staying with a partner and it no longer felt safe or healthy for them to stay with that partner anymore or other people who had um, addiction issues that made it hard for them to maintain other types of housing or housing at other, or I should say shelter um, at other shelters. Right. So it, it was really a, a wide range of people. Um, everybody's story was pretty unique. Mm -hmm. uh, Eric, when the Second Avenue Common Shelter opened in November, uh, did that change Smithfield's population? Did it bring it down at all? What? So, yeah, Kevin, that was the, the expectation that um, Second Avenue Commons was was going to be a replacement for Smithfield and, and Smithfield wasn't even um, supposed to open uh, at the beginning of that season. Um, but because Second Avenue Commons was was they were also experiencing just high um, amounts of demand at their overflow shelter uh, that the county decided to open Smithfield anyway. Um, and then Smithfield as well, quickly. Uh, hit max capacity. So um, there was definitely a need for, for both of the, those, those shelters. And, you know, we're not, we're not too far away from the beginning of, of the next winter season. Right. And it seems like we're kind of at the same, same, uh, same place that we were at the beginning of last year. To either of you, uh, has the number of unhoused individuals been underestimated if the uh, Second Avenue Commons filled up immediately and the overflow filled up and there was still the need for the emergency shelter. Have we been underestimating the demand for sheltering people? Yeah, I would, I would say it seems like there there's definitely um, we're not quite sure as as a society how many people are ex experiencing displacement. Um, and uh, the way that we even measure it is is wholly unscientific where there's just a, a day and I think it's in February where they, they go out on a really cold night and just count the number of people they see who appear to be experiencing homelessness. So 
um, yeah, there's it definitely seems like there's there's some some lack of insight into that, and I don't I don't know if that's anyone's fault. I think that's just the the nature of of that. It's it's just hard to get a full grasp on it. Eric, you've spoken with shelter it workers. Is, oh, go ahead, Stephanie. Oh, I was just going to say it is really hard to track because it's something that people can kind of cycle in and out of, and you don't always know. Um, you don't always know what what it looks like for people experiencing homelessness. It could mean somebody staying on somebody's couch. It could mean, you know, somebody staying in an abandoned home. And a lot of times it's really hard to count that um, even in that point in time count in, in early January that the whole um, nation goes through. So it, it is it is a difficult number to come to. Eric, you also spoke to shelter workers, Team PSBG. Uh, briefly, who are these people? Social workers, volunteers? Uh, yeah, I, I think they're they're sort of a mixed bag, all of a mixed bag, all of the above. Um, when we asked uh, PSBG to describe who they are, they said we are a group of diverse humans who believe everyone deserves to be accounted for. Um, and yeah, there's there's just maybe about a, um, half a dozen or so of them uh, that work the Smithfield shelter stairs now, um, and they're they're still there every night. Uh, they're reporting about sixty people or so or coming through there looking for a space to sleep at, even though the shelter's obviously closed. Um, and the the county is is not supporting the the maintenance of of staying out there every night. So they told us that the project has been defunded. Okay. Well that brings me to my final question very briefly to each of you. Officials have said they'd try to help those displaced find new accommodations. So is this the end a month out? Is this the end of efforts from the county to assist those impacted by this closure? Very briefly, Stephanie. Uh, no, I don't think this is the end. I think the county is feeling that there's um, a lot of attention on this right now. And there's also a lot of people that work at the county that are driven to find unique ways of um, unique and diverse ways of being able to assist people. And that's looked like bringing on a lot more um, teams that are doing outreach on the streets. And it also means um, looking to decentralize shelter so that um, when there's a surge again in the winter time in terms of needing emergency shelter, they're able to, instead of having people all at one place downtown, perhaps have a bunch of smaller places spread throughout the city and the region. And very briefly, Eric. Yeah, and the the county has has uh, praised Team PSBG uh, for their work um, and has expressed interest in wanting to do more work with them. So uh, there's always that possibility, even though it sounds like talks between the two groups have have uh, kind of cooled down over the last few days. Uh, but yeah, there's I think there's always options. Stephanie Strasberg is a photojournalist with Public Source. Eric Chankowitz is economic development reporter for Public Source. Thanks for your reporting and thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks so much, Kevin. Thank you. It's the Confluence on 90.5 WESA. I'm Kevin Gavin. A Kaiser Health News investigation from 2022 found 100 million people in America suffer from medical debt, and some of them are even denied health care services because of it. On June 26, the Pennsylvania House, by a 114-89 vote, approved a measure to help low-income families pay off their debt. Jesse Foster is Deputy Director of Policy and Partnerships with the Pennsylvania Health Access Network. Jesse, welcome. Thank you for having me. 
Jesse, briefly, the bill is now in the Senate Health and Human Services Committee. Uh, can you tell us what it would specifically do? Yeah, so the bill is it's a really uh, exciting uh, um, attempt at addressing medical debt for folks here in Pennsylvania. It's kind of two-pronged in that, one, it's going to help relieve some of the existing medical debt that people have um, by buying off some of this debt for pennies on the dollar. And it's also the, but the more important thing is that it's going to prevent future medical debt from happening. So for all those folks who might be putting off going to the doctor's appointments um, out of concerns of what these medical bills might look like, this is going to be help um, really reinforce existing programs uh, with financial assistance throughout hospitals to help um, patients access free and reduced um, health care uh, in those settings. And so that is really a really great thing that this bill will do. Can you give us an idea of the extent of the medical debt problem here in Pennsylvania? Unfortunately, it is much more significant than uh, I think a lot of people realize. Within Pennsylvania, um, I believe it is about one in 10 people who currently have bills that are in collections. Um, and as many as um, one in four have reported that they actually have uh, struggled with paying medical bills in the last uh, just in the last year. We know that there are people who have shared with us uh, residents that we've been speaking with in conversations um, who say that they can't sleep at night because they're concerned about what these bills are going to look like. All right. Uh, let me follow up with that. Uh, you work with people across Pennsylvania. Uh, please give us an example maybe of a person that was hit by a huge amount of debt. Maybe it was because of an unexpected medical event. Exactly. Um, for example, we had an end of, uh, one of our residents in the uh, Allegheny County who shared that he had some, he'd been working all his life, but he had some health complications and he had an emergency that resulted in an ambulance visit. And that ambulance ride alone cost $6,000. And as a result, now he's living on fixed social security income and it, he can't make these payments that he's been forced to. So he's kind of having to choose between making paying off this ambulance medical bill where he probably would have actually qualified for financial assistance or um, choosing to pay utilities, food and other day to day costs. Mm -hmm. Jesse, we have uh, just a couple of minutes left. I want to ask you, the Senate is not scheduled to return till September, although, as we know, the governor wants Senate leaders to get back to Harrisburg to sign the budget legislation. What indications are you getting about the Senate's reaction to medical debt relief? So, so far, we are still kind of hopeful. Um, worst case, it will go back to the Senate in the fall, and we're really uh, hoping that it can get approved. But there's still a chance that it might get passed in the budget. Um, we're kind of keeping an eye out. Uh, last week, we had about 800 um, letters from residents across the state uh, delivered to Governor Shapiro's office, um, urging him to see if it can still be included in the budget. And that could be included as part of those code bills we've heard about that accompany the budget. Jesse, yes. uh, but the longer this takes, the more the medical debt gets accumulated and mounts. Yes. And unfortunately, the medical debt is not only what is kind of like counted medical debt that's already in collections, but we know that there's a lot of people who simply are paying off um, these bills and putting them on credit card payments 
or they are just going through their life savings. Um, we had an individual who said she ended up working nine years past her re normal retirement age just to be able to pay her husband's medical expenses. And finally, uh, we have less than a minute to go. I mean, what changes uh, do you want to see in the healthcare industry to maybe, you know, head off future debt? Precisely. We just want to see anything that can be done to prevent medical debt from re happening in the future. And so with House Bill 78 introduced by <laughs> Representative Venkat, um, this is going to be an attempt to help cut people um from getting those bills, people who are already eligible for financial assistance programs and reduced cost um, to these medical bills. And this is really good to reinforce it and help people be more aware of these programs that exist so that they're not getting stuck with bills that um, they're forcing them to make really hard life choices. And so, therefore, are you confident, whether it's the summer with the budget or in September, that this uh, legislation will get passed eventually? We are. I think that there's something it's um, we've seen the bipartisan support with the House, and I think it's going to continue. So Jesse Foster is the deputy director of policy and partnerships with Pennsylvania Health Access Network. Jesse, thanks so much. Thank you for having us. It's the Confluence. I'm Kevin Gavin. A live performance series in Pittsburgh is profiling local residents deemed, quote, extraordinary, ordinary Pittsburghers. The latest installment, debuting this week, is all about a woman critical in the fabric of the Braddock community. Her name is Mary Carey. 90.5 WESA's Bill O'Driscoll has more. The series People of Pittsburgh is produced by an experimental theater company called Real Time Arts. Founders Molly Rice and Rusty Thalen first met Mary Carey eight years ago while creating a show called The Saints Tour of Braddock. They recruited local collaborators. We ask around, we say, who's like the the heart of the community? Who's the community hub? Who knows everybody? And everyone answered Mary Carey at the library. Carey, who worked then at the Braddock Carnegie Library, introduced Rice and Thalen to many neighbors. So a few years later, when Rice and Thalen created People of Pittsburgh, Carey was the first person they approached. I didn't believe him. Carey recalls Rice's suggestion they do a show about her. My first thing was like, oh, I don't people and she's laughing. She was like, Rusty said she would say that. She did not think we were talking about her. This is so quintessential Mary, right? She was like, oh, you're doing a show about people of Pittsburgh. Let me give you 10 different names. Rice says Carrie, who's 54, was finally persuaded. She said, great, uh, I'd love for you to do a show about me, but it has to be about everybody. While it's not really about everybody, Carrie knows, the new show is no conventional play. It's built around excerpts from audio interviews with Carrie, her friends, and neighbors. Billed as part variety show, part listening party, part community gathering, the cast of 10 teams professional artists with adults and kids from Braddock whose lives Carrie has touched. One is Carrie's longtime neighbor, Sanford Mark Barnes. He says she works hard to keep neighborhood children busy. She come knocking on the door, you know, Mr. Sanford, we got stuff going on in the library. Bring your kids, come on, bring your kids. Based on the interviews, Rice and the cast created a show with original songs and dances, storytelling, even giant puppets. Thalen directs. In rehearsal, Erica Denae Jay sings a song she wrote around one of Carrie's favorite expressions, Make It Make Sense. Make it make sense. There's so much joy I have to gain. Let's bring someone back to life with connection. Kids' rhyming games recall Carrie's childhood in the St. Clair Village housing project. 
In one interview featured in the production, Carrie's lifelong friend Kenya describes their relationship. I met her when I was 13 years old. When I needed a mother, when I needed a friend, when I needed a sister, when I needed a... She was it. She, she's still it. The show also recounts difficult times in Carrie's life, including her struggles as a young single mother and her troubled first marriage, as discussed in this interview with Rice. That's where you got the name Carrie, that husband? Yeah, that husband. Mm-hmm. And so what happened with him? He was no good for me. He wasn't good for you. The show is titled The Constellationist. Rice says that's because Carrie creates relationships between other people, like stars in a constellation. Other performers include Braddock resident Lish Danielle and her two young sons. In this monologue, Danielle recalls a low point in her life when Carrie, quote, resurrected her by welcoming her into the library. She talked to me with no agenda, no selfish gain. I had to stop the tears because some random woman saw something I hadn't shown in a long time. She saw me. Danielle adds, We want Mary to know that now is the time to be adored. How does Carrie herself feel about all this attention? Aside from recordings, she's not in the show, and she avoids rehearsals. Like, I've seen the script, but I want to be as surprised just as everybody else. But she says hearing the interviews moved her. What took me was listening to, I might cry a little bit, listening to her interviews with other people. Overwhelming. People had never told her how they felt about her before. Not, not, no, that's the, that's the thing about it. I didn't, it just blew my mind. The Constellationist runs 90 minutes. It gets five performances Wednesday through Sunday at Attack Theater Studios in Lawrenceville. Bill O'Driscoll, 90.5 WESA News. And for today, that is the confluence where the news comes together on 90.5 WESA. Next time, some hospitals in the region are using a machine learning model to help ID patients at high risk for serious post-surgery complications. Plus, how many Pennsylvanians could be affected by a boost in the minimum wage? Thanks to our team, Addison Deal, Laura Satsui, and Mary Lee Williams. I'm Kevin Gavin. Until next time, hope you have a good day of good news.